Welcome to the Gill Athletics Connections Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Cunningham, National Sales Manager for Gill Athletics. Our goal today is to connect you with coaches from around the world to learn their journey, share their stories, and just figure out who they are and what they're all about. So without further ado, let's get on and find out what today's guest has in store for us. All right. Thanks for joining us again here on the Gill Athletics Connections podcast. I am your host, Mike Cunningham. And today's guest, you know, this is actually kind of personal for me for today's guest. You've already seen his name on the title. Help me welcome the wise, the wonderful Mr. Boo <laughs> Shexnader. Boo, how are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Of all the introductions I've had, that was the most touching and most amusing at the same time. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's what my wife says about me as well. Like you're very touching. You're very amusing, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Boo, it's a real honor to have you here, not only for, you know, I'm just so excited to bring your story to the listeners and uh, the many journeys you've had in, uh, in coaching and what you're doing now, but also personally for me, you know, I've told this story many times on the podcast. In fact, you're, you're probably one of the maybe a handful of people that your name gets brought up in almost every single podcast in some form or fashion. <laughs> uh, and I think that's a real testament to the impact you've made on coaching, uh, specifically with track and field. So I'm just super excited just to explore that and kind of just bring your, your full story to, to the masses, if you will. Well, good. I'm looking forward to it. Well, let's hop into it, man. I'm so excited to have you here. I just want to get started and just like blurt it all out. So let's kind of get in our, um, our way back machine here. Talk to us about where did track start for you? Were you an athlete? What's, where does track begin for you? I, I wasn't much of a track athlete. Um, actually, my first interest in track, uh, my high school won a regional uh, championship which is not that big a deal in Louisiana, to be honest with you, but I thought it was a big deal and I wasn't on the team. So I went off of the team next year and I ended up throwing the javelin and dabbling in some other events, but you know, um, our, uh, we didn't really have, it, it wasn't coaching like you think of, you know I mean? The, the coach collected athletes and got us out there and got us organized and that type of thing, you know? And I, I'm very grateful for the fact that he had that approach, you know, even to this day, I hear sometimes high school athletes will come to me and as a, in the collegiate setting and say, you know, my high school coach didn't know anything, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I immediately put a, uh, 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 I immediately curtail that conversation because ultimately that's what's important is this is a person that sold you on the sport. Well, anyway, this person's uh, coach email, he sold me on the sport and I started kind of liking track. I wasn't great at it. I was much more of a football person than a track person, but you know, I was out there and I enjoyed it and so forth. And then um, I don't know why, but as soon as I finished high school, I knew I wanted to coach. And even though I was majoring in uh, engineering, because that's kind of what everybody expected me to do, I just kind of knew I wanted to coach. And I started coaching kind of part time and everything. And uh, I was much more football than track. But because I had the interest in track, I started dabbling in track immediately upon my high school graduation. I was still, you know, in college, you know, taking classes my freshman year and still helping, started to help out at the high school and that type of stuff. And, and uh, I'm just the kind of person that if I'm going to do track, I'm going to try to do it well, just like I tried to do football well. And that's kind of how I got started in track, so to speak. I was 
a pretty decent football player, but as a track athlete, I was really nothing special. Uh, I just, just liked it, you know? So what was it about coaching that, like you said, it was immediate, like, oh yeah, I'm going to coach. Was it your high school coach? Was it, um, did you see famous coaches, you know, basketball, NFL at that time? And you're like, I want to be the man. What, what was it that, I mean, it seems like this was automatic for you. Uh, yeah, it was. And I can't answer that question accurately. When, when I think back at it, my high school coaches made athletics a positive thing for me. So that was, I appreciated that. But I think it probably had something to do with personality. I, I kind of love the chess match of coaching, particularly coaching football. I kind of love the chess match. Uh, by nature, I'm a problem solver. You know, if you give, you give me three puzzles, I'm going to pick the hardest puzzle and I'm, I'm going to obsess until <laughs> I finish it. You know, I'm kind of a problem solver by nature. That's probably why I started in engineering. Right. And uh, I, I also like the fact that um, there are infinite variables in coaching. You know, you play chess and the rook can only move this way and the knight can only move this way. Well, in, in coaching, there are there, there's infinite variables. You know, there you know, there really is no single roadmap to success. And so many coaches do it in different ways. So to make a long story short, I, I think it's a profession that really fit my personality. And I saw it as a challenge, you know, and then when you take into account the different personalities you have to deal with. That's just another level of complexity involved in coaching. And I, I think I probably took to it not only because I like sports, but also because I appreciated the challenges that it came, came along with it. You know, I just found it tremendously challenging and interesting. So you go to college and you're studying engineering, but you're starting to help out from the get-go, coaching track at the high school, doing some football. Were you participating in track at college? No, we didn't even have a track team. And um, in, in fact, I ended up, I, I, I went to LSU. This, this is a funny story, but um, I got recruited to play football at a couple of small schools, but they didn't have engineering schools. Hmm. So I decided I would go to LSU as a student um, to, um, to, to, to study engineering. And I turned down scholarships, not only athletic scholarships, even academic scholarships. But I was making like $500 a week uh, catching crawfish in commercial fishing. And the tuition for college, my first semester, for the semester was $275. So it, it really wasn't that big. A, a scholarship wasn't what it is now. First know? of all, I, I love how Louisiana and you are, man. You pay for college by crawfish. <laughs> <laughs> no, that... that and I hate to say it, as much as I love coaching, that's still the best job I ever had, to be <laughs> frank with you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in any case, um, so I went to LSU as an engineering student and was really miserable because my heart was really in coaching. Mm. And then I transferred to Nichols and I graduated from Nichols. I actually played football for a short time at Nichols as a walk-on. And um, mostly because I wanted to learn football to make me a better coach more so than the, the fact that I was trying to go to the NFL or anything like that. But they're one of the schools that had actually kind of called me, uh, you know, when I was actually, you know, coming out of high school and so forth. And that was the local school. And since it was the local school, I could I could go back to crawfishing again. <laughs> <laughs> and make you money, you know. Did you end up getting your degree in engineering or did you switch to some kind of education? No, no, I ended up getting my degree in physical education. Yeah. And yes, young people, at one time you could get a degree in physical <laughs> education. I think my degree says physical education, recreation, and safety education. Oh, with man. A minor, with a minor in math education. And I was a math teacher at the high school level. 
in math because, um, you know, with the engineering, I had a lot of credits in math. So that's what I did. And I like, I frankly, I enjoyed being in the classroom, uh, high school. You know, it, uh, you know, I found that to be kind of a challenge as well. And, you know, I, anyway, to teach kids math in courses they really didn't want to be in, you know, yeah. to make them interesting and, you know, help the kids succeed and all that. So I actually, you know, never really taught PE. I was a coach, but I was pretty much more of a classroom teacher um, when I got started. I should have taken taken a poll before we started. And, you know, what do you think Boo Shexnader got his undergrad degree in? Maybe PE, they would have said, but definitely would not have guessed just started out in engineering and then went math as far as, uh, you know, math minor and everything. Mm -hmm. So you end up graduating from Nickel State. Great school. We've had their uh, their now head coach on the podcast before. I love Nickel State. It's a great little mm -hmm. place, man. Uh, in fact, when I was at Troy University, uh, we were in the Southland Conference. So we used to play Nickel State mm -hmm. in football all the time. Never knew where mm -hmm. Thibodeau was. <laughs> just knew nickel state the colonels so yeah. you you get your degree you go in your high school teaching so are you high school coaching track and field right off the bat as well immediately yeah i i was already doing it kind of part-time you know as as a while i was in college and i immediately moved into the in the same school in my alma mater into a full-time uh coaching role and i was a defensive coordinator in football my very first uh year and uh i was a track coach as well. And we kind of had a co-track co coach kind of thing. There were two of us who kind of handled track together. So, so what is your, I'm going to call it style of coaching at that point. And I don't mean, you know, we don't talk X's and O's and things like that, but more of like, you know, now I know of you as a very, I'm gonna call it cerebral teaching type of coach. Were you that way from the get go? No, maybe in football, because I was well-educated in football. I knew defensive schemes and all that, but in track, I knew nothing. You know, I, I really didn't. Uh, so the thing that fueled my coaching then was insecurity and, and fear of failure more than anything else. So, you know, my first season or two of coaching track, it was all about just finding, you know, it was boys track is what we had and finding any kid in the hallway that you thought could maybe walk and chew gum at the same time, getting them out there and see if they had a talent to, to do something, you know? And uh, I remember the, the, the state champions were in our league, were in our district and uh, uh, they, they had lots of quality athletes. And anyway, I said, well, maybe we don't have a long jumper as good as this one, but we're going to have two who are decent. We're going to have two triple jumpers who are decent and two, you know, I'm going to find, two kids who don't mind hurting a little bit to run the mile and run the two mile and go, you know, so it was basically recruiting the hallways and, and so forth. And, and um, anyway, I was pretty successful as a defensive coordinator and became successful as a track coach more through that type of effort. But um, what, it, what happened um, as far as track was concerned, not long after that was when uh, Path and Seagrave and Maxwell and all of those guys came to uh, LSU Right. I, you know, I was spending a whole weekend working on game plans for football. And I said, well, I spent about five minutes deciding what I'm going to do for track track. There's got to be more to track than this, right. you know? So, so I started driving up to LSU when I could and watching track practices. And I was extremely fortunate because Dan Path took me kind of under his wing and he became a, a mentor to me. I will forever be very appreciative to him for all of the time and energy that he put into me as a as a coach and as a person and everything. And um, he, he took me, grabbed me at a very, um, a, a very, uh, I guess, critical time in my formation as a coach, because I, I kind of started to see things and I, I kind of had some hunches on some things. 
And not only did Dan teach me a lot, but what Dan really did for me that was the most valuable was I was getting to the point where I was seeing some things a little different than what common culture and culture saw. You know, I saw some things differently. I said, why do we train this way? Why do we use this technique? Some of that doesn't make sense. And Dan was the person who told me, no, 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 you're seeing it clearly. You need to kind of trust yourself. You need to explore what you're seeing and so forth. And don't be afraid to go away from the, 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 the common culture. And that's what Dan really did for me. I mean, I learned a lot from him as far as just factual material, but the encouragement he gave me to kind of um, not be afraid to go out on a branch or on a limb, so to speak, uh, technically or training wise or whatever, if I had a reason for it and if you could support it with sports science and so forth. So the confidence that he gave me at that point in my career was extremely helpful. Was that the state of coaching education at that point was another coach? Uh, I know we didn't have, you know, obviously we wouldn't have YouTube and maybe we didn't have camps and clinics and we didn't have access to a guy like you back then. We didn't have email and phones and what have you. What was coaching education? Uh, you're talking about Dan Path, which that's amazing. Is, is that what the state of coaching education was at that point? Well, it was finding a mentor, so to speak. You know, there really weren't many, you know, at that that time, USA Track and Field Coaching in the Education was in its infancy, mm-hmm. you know, just getting started. Right. And I kind of met Dan probably a little bit before that got started or right around that time, but um, uh, a little before, actually, when I think about it. But basically, there were some clinics around and you found a way to hustle and get to clinics and things like that. But there really wasn't anything that was, I guess you would say curricular. There wasn't anything that was all encompassing. And that I think was a tremendous challenge to coaches in those days, because you'd go to one clinic and this highly successful coach said, you should be running 300s. And this coach said, no, you run 200s, you know? So you had all of this stuff and there wasn't anything you, you had to sort it all out mm-hmm. and you spent your whole darn life collecting workouts and collecting drills and all those things. And you never really knew why you were doing anything. And that's why to me, coaching education was helpful and why I felt a passion to advance coaching education, because it took all of these things that were out there and put them in context. So now all of a sudden, instead of all of these different workouts and we don't know what we're doing now, all of a sudden, because of this curriculum, I understand exactly what I'm trying to accomplish. So I know, therefore, I can do this workout, this workout, this workout, and be fine. I don't have to do these workouts because that stuff's covered elsewhere, you know. So it kind of put everything in context and helped, you know, organize it in your own mind, so to speak, you know. As you were organizing this in your mind and you're being mentored by by Dan and maybe you're doing some of the camps and clinics, is there a I know a passion becomes coaching education for you. And we're going to get into that here later. Did you see it that early of like, man, if I could somehow bring all this together, or were you still just, you know, you're still a rookie at that point. Are you still just learning, trying to feel your way out? I'm trying to bring it together, but bring it together for myself. I don't even think I'm worth getting in front of a group of people and speaking, you know, at this point in my career yet, you know, and that was another thing, Dan, you know, says, you know, you need to teach this coaching ed stuff, you know, and he said, you're going to teach this level two class. I hadn't taught, taught a level one class. Yeah, wow. You're going to teach a level two class. He said, you sure you can handle it? I said, if you think I'm, if you think I'm ready, I'm ready. You know, so, and that's kind of how we got started, I guess you would say. Yeah. So I had done a, I'd done a couple of clinics, you know, like high school level clinics and things, but that's all I had done. So Dan really saw something in you, not just as a coach, but as a coach of coaches. Evidently so. I surely didn't see it in myself. 
<laughs> we, we rarely do, right? That's why we need coaches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I read somewhere where Nick Saban is fueled more by fear of failure than uh, the desire to succeed. And I'm not sure I'm not that same person. Mm. Interesting. You're taller than him, though. So that's where we're, you're on a better footing right there. <laughs> but his hair is better. Yeah, he does have good hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you continue coaching high school. Do you bounce around in the in the high school ranks or do you go on to college coaching? I thought I was a lifer in high school. I, I thought I was going to be a lifer. Um, you know, I was a defensive coordinator. I was highly thought of. Uh, I was getting some offers to coach small time college football and that type of thing, you know, and uh, I was there in my hometown and the track teams were doing really well. And all of a sudden, you know, administration at the school changed and I was a little disconcerted and and whatever. And all of a sudden I got a call, you know, about possibly doing something in college track. And that's when I ended up at the junior college, you know, at at Blinn Junior College that, that, you know, I decided I just needed to do something different or try something different. And that was kind of when that all happened. So I only kind of got into track because I don't know, like, like I said, just, uh, I hate to say bad high school administration. I don't want to cost, I don't want to cast that stone, you know, because nothing's totally bad, but for me personally, you know, I was growing at a rate and it was kind of confining and so forth. So I'm not blaming anyone in particular Mm -hmm. at the high school or anything, but I was kind of outgrowing the situation, to be honest with you, a little bit and uh, needed a place to kind of spread a little. And and that lifeline came along. And uh, next thing you know, I'm, um, I, I was I was a coward uh, to, to just quit my high school job. So I actually took sabbatical to go to work at the junior college, you know, kind of thinking, well, if I don't like it, I can come back or whatever. You know? wow. So. So that's how I ended up at Blinn uh, Community College. You know, and I forget Texas. And I forget you're at Blinn. So this is a great opportunity because you know half of our listeners right now are sitting there shaking their head, going, "Oh yeah, Blinn Junior College. We remember that powerhouse." And then the other half are like, "Blinn Junior College. Where is that? I've never heard of that. That's not Barton. That's not uh, uh, the Arizona <laughs> Junior Colleges, etc." Right. Um, so talk to us about Blinn. Uh, the other coaches that were there. I mean, it's got a great coaching tree itself out of Blinn, and just just how darn good were you guys? <laughs> Yeah, we were really good. Of yeah. course, junior college is track without rules. There's no there's no academic limitations or anything. And Blim was an incredible situation because um, uh, it, the the president there of the college was very sold on track. You know, his daughter run track, loved track. You know, and he could always find an extra scholarship or whatever. You know, so it was one of those situations. But the main reason we're successful was a chain of good coaches came yeah. through there. You know, Coach Henry came through there. And then Coach Silva came through. And Coach Silva was, was the guy who brought me there. And Coach Silva was one of the best bosses I've ever had. I, you know, he's known throughout the sport as, you know, a hardworking coach and also a little bit of a character. But let me tell you, I, I've never had a boss who was as good to me wow. as Steve Silva was. I mean, he gave you gave me complete autonomy over a group of athletes that I probably wasn't really qualified to coach just yet. And he threw a huge uh, security blanket underneath, you you know, safety net underneath you. And it was a working for him was a huge positive at that point in my career. He really did, uh, really did help me by just giving me the kind of the, the freedom to kind of never, you know, second guessing or anything like that. Were you when you go to Blinn? and even through your coaching at the high school, were you zeroing in on the horizontal jump specifically now knowing, but that caveat, you can coach, you can coach anything actually, but you're much, much more well-known as the long jump, triple jump coach. Were you 
steering that way early or were you coaching, coaching other events? I was, I coached everything in high school. The reason I got to be known as a long and triple jump coach was because when I was in high school, uh, every school that I had to beat would put their best athletes in the sprints. And I found that if I took my best athletes and put them in long jump, triple jump hurdles and those types of events that were a little more coaching was involved and maybe right. even a little less athletic competition, I could get a little more bang for my buck. So I was turning out good long jumpers and triple jumpers and hurdlers and people like that uh, at that time. So I got to be known as a jumps coach, but it was strictly by accident in, in that regard, you know. Yeah, it's not so, like not yeah. like you were a jumper coming out of high school. You're more javelin and some other events, really. Oh no, I, I never, I've never. I got to be the Olympic coach in the event, and I never even tried long jump in a track meet. I still haven't tried it. We'll just buy. We've skipped that stage. Then you don't don't go trying it, coach. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So, give us some specifics here. When you say Blinn was good, because yeah, you know, I've heard some stories about Blinn, how good Blinn was but there's other people who have no context at all what good means. Uh, you, you know, I coached Juco for a year and I had to go up against uh, my buddy Lance Brahman at Barton. And this is when they would win. You, you remember because Walter Davis and all those guys yeah. you know, end up coaching mm-hmm. them. So that was during that time frame. You know, Blinn would win. I'm, I'm probably going to be way off on this because of my memory, but, you know, they'd win nationals by 100 points. I mean, they were, they were by far the greatest team around. And my understanding is Blinn would have beaten those teams to a pulp. Yeah, yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. And again, you had good coaches, you had a great president, you had un- almost unlimited resources. It was a perfect storm kind of scenario, you know. And um, to put it in context, even to this day, Blinn would score and would be in the top five nationally in the NCAA Division One championships in any meet, you know, that wow. we go to the, the type of athletes that we had back then and so forth, you know. So uh, it was, they were really, really, really good. Really so good. How many years at Blinn and just where, one, just one. Okay. And so where and why next? Well, I liked it. I wanted to stay. There's a law that says if you take sabbatical um, and uh, you have to go back, if you don't go back, you have to pay back all the money. Well, I thought they would waive that for me, but they didn't. <laughs> so I ended up going back to high school for one year. And then it was the year after that. I kind of had my eyes open to leave. And that year after that was when Coach Lawson at um, what was then University of Southwestern Louisiana, now Louisiana Lafayette, uh, gave me an opportunity to go over there and coach the jumpers at that school. Did you meet a lot of coaches in that year at Blinn? Did you meet a lot of college coaches from recruiting the Blinn athletes? Did you start kind of building network out that way? Yeah, it did help somewhat, you know. Um, It wasn't a lot, but it was a sizable number, enough to get help. You know, I had a few contacts. But interestingly, the the contacts I made there weren't the ones that got me into my next uh, collegiate job. I guess it was an old high school, you know, Coach Lawson and I coached high school at the same time. You know, Coach Lawson, who was the head coach at ULL, was a longtime Louisiana high school coach. And um, um, anyway, you know, and, and so was I. And I, I still kind of had more high school roots than anything else. And uh, and we had him and, of course, Coach Baton, who had been at Blinn as well, was his assistant. And uh, again, longtime high school coach. So it was a whole nest of high school coaches moving up. And that's why I always say to this day, if you can coach, you can coach, you know. And everybody thinks that, you know, College coaches are automatically better. Part of my recruiting pitch to this day is that just because you're going to college doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get a better coach. 
Mm. You know, I, I tell that to recruits to kind of make them stop and think sometimes. And there's no, I, I think nobody would disagree with that, you know. Uh, but in any case, so I ended up there and was coaching the jumpers at ULL and I stayed there for, uh, for three years. Where is coaching education with you at that time? Oh, I'm, I'm well, I'm in it. Deep. Is that yeah, right? I've already, yeah, I've already taught, a, you know, I've already taught a couple of level two schools when I made that move and so forth. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in it deep and I'm starting to become a fairly popular uh, clinician, you know, on clinic circuit and that type of stuff. I, 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 it's, you know, and this is when I'm starting to get a little more confident because I'm starting to realize because of the reaction I'm getting from people that, you know, I must be pretty good at this clinic stuff because people are calling me and people are, once I talk in one place, I get offers to speak in other places and so forth. So that's when it all kind of started to, to grow during my early years at a USL. When, so you're doing now, I'm gonna call a ton of different clinics and uh, coaching education. Are you writing any of the curriculum at this point? Or are you still teaching? Not yet. Yeah, not yet. But that's coming. I uh, went long before I started doing some rewriting kind of stuff with the USA track and field stuff and everything. You know, and Dan and all those guys put that curriculum together. It was pretty much, you know, they were busy and, you know, it, there was a ton of good material. You remember, you've seen those materials back in the day. It was like tons and tons of appendices and all those types of things. But there really wasn't much text, per se, to kind of put it all in context or whatever, you know. So that was kind of the challenge, you know, at that point, as far as the rewriting was concerned, to just kind of take all the good material that was there and just kind of sort it all out and make it into a true curriculum rather than just a collection of materials, so to speak. You know, the stuff that Dan had done and Bob Myers had done and, and NOCA stuff and all, you know, just kind of getting all that stuff kind of organized, just kind of, you know, form it into an outline a little bit more in that type of and to give full respect to those kind of pioneers of, of curriculum-based coaching education, rattle off some of the names that were part of that original group. I know um, um, you mentioned Dan, uh, who is, I'm totally blanking on his name, the distance coach up in Colorado. Oh, V Hill was yeah, kind v. of the Hill. Force. Yeah, he was a big part. Yeah, V Hill was kind of the driving force. In fact, um, I think the thing that spurred it more than anything else was V Hill, if I remember correctly, did his dissertation on coaching education programs, like internationally, like mm -hmm. a kind of a survey or research project into international uh, uh, coaching education programs. And I think that was kind of a, a spur to the whole thing. But I remember people like Al Beta and Vern Gambetta were involved. Yeah, and of right. course, Dan was involved. Um, um, I hate to say names because I'm leaving off a bunch of names. You know, Lauren was involved in the early stages of it as well. Um, um, I remember Bill Berg being somebody who was heavily involved. Uh, it seemed like uh, Louisiana was a nucleus. Minnesota was kind of a nucleus. Um, anyway, I, I'm, I'm drawing some blanks here. And yeah, again, sure, I sure. hate to leave out certain names, but it was, I would say, a group of probably a dozen to 15 people who were really involved in getting all the whole coaching education movement going, I guess you would say. Yeah, I put, I put you on the spot there. So Winkler, Winkler uh, was another one. I yeah, think. that's right, Gary. Right, right, absolutely. And, and you mentioned V Hill doing his dissertation on kind of the state of coaching education in the world. Were we behind in America in I'm gonna call it formalized coaching education, not just you know buddies talking at the track, a, a actual curriculum? Were we behind in America at that point? I, yes, I think we were. Um, to be honest with you, um, given the number of people we have that are certified coaches and 
the population of our country, some people claim we're still behind, but at least now we have good programs in place. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's really no excuse nowadays. I mean, even exactly. when, I, when I was coaching 2005 and prior, it was, you know, there were a lot of opportunities. Uh, we didn't have USTF CCCA coaching education back then. We uh, pretty much only had USATF, uh, but it was still kind of hard to get to. It was once a year for level two, et cetera. Now mm -hmm. it feels like, especially now kind of, you know, as we're coming hopefully to the other side of COVID, now it seems like you, you can't help but trip over a Zoom call with a good coach or, uh, you know, education clinics all, all on Zoom. Like you ain't even got to go travel anymore. Uh, and amazing coaches doing these things. This ain't just, this ain't me doing a coaching clinic. These are some amazing coaches that are sharing uh, some of their knowledge out there. So I, I like that where we are in regards to that open access to coaching education. Yeah. I hope, yeah, the Zoom has been wonderful because of the access people have. I just hope that we never go completely to Zoom because I just remember the interactions yes. during the classes and the interactions between the classes were often so, so, so valuable. You know? So um, I, I hope that we never totally lose sight of uh, what face-to-face -face education is all about. 1000%. And then I think about regular education in that same way, you know, getting your undergrad or your MBA certainly there's some value. Again, access is a big deal, right? To be able to do it through a Zoom type online type education. But boy, there is a lot of extra added value face-to-face -face in a group, in a group of people that are unlike you and learning how they do things. Uh, and, and you're like, man, I didn't know you could coach the hammer without a hammer cage. What am I doing? I, I should be able to teach the hammer now, you know? So it's great to see that variety and how people, you know, coaches just get it done in a lot of senses. So it's great to be around fellow coaches that are getting it done. You can learn invaluable stuff that way so mm -hmm. how many years at southwest louisiana is that right southwest louisiana is what it was called university of southwest louisiana university the of Cajuns, yeah. still the raging I, uh, Cajuns, yeah. yeah i was there i was there three years and i um my first year i didn't have too much i was able to get a really good triple jumper in as a recruited midterm and then um the next year i produced a bunch of all americans and then that triple jumper um two years later ended up winning the ncaa title so I was at a mid-major and uh, I was developing All-Americans and had an NCAA champion at mid-major. You know, a lot of people think I ended up at LSU because I was from Louisiana or, or I was lucky or had a connection. But I, I remind the mid-major people who are kind of whining, you know, that well, I don't get a break. Well, I didn't really get a break. I kind of made a break, you know, when my triple jumper in Tennessee won the NCAA title, you know, from a mid-major school, that was something that kind of oh, you know, kind of opened some eyes, you know, and I already had a pretty good reputation as a jumps coach through some of the clinic stuff, but I think maybe people realized that it wasn't just, I wasn't just a clinician that I could actually produce points, you know, and produce on the track. So as you were coaching those All-Americans and you win a national title, I mean, that is awesome. I, I, you know, I, I, my last coaching job was at Mississippi State in the SEC against you, by the way. So like, <laughs> terrible. I, that's, this guy is who got me out of coaching. I was like, I can't beat this guy. I'm getting no, out of it. Your, hurt, your hurdlers ran pretty good, <laughs> but that's another story for another day. Exactly. Um, but I do, you know, my roots are at Ball State and Troy University and JUCO, you know, that's where my mm -hmm. roots are. So I do love seeing the Southwest Louisiana All-American or National Champion, Middle Tennessee, those kind of schools. Uh, it just, I don't know, I don't know that it means more. I just know that it's a lot under-resourced there and the expectations mm -hmm. are lower. So to overcome those, is just phenomenal to me. I love seeing that. 
And I enjoyed it. It was one of the, I was broke coaching there uh, financially, but it, you know, cause I took a pay cut to go there. You know, you oh, talk right. about paying dues and whatever, but to go from high school, whatever, to go there was a big pay cut. Mm-hmm. Um, cause all I really got was a stipend to coach there. And I was kind of hustling money on the side, but mm-hmm. I decided if I wanted to do this, you pay dues, you know, and that's, you know, what it is. At some point in time, you step backwards. And that was my point at which I stepped backwards, mm-hmm. but it was a really fun level to coach at because you know, you could, you could get, sometimes there were athletes, good athletes that you had an asterisk on it that you could get into your school that might not be able to get into another school. Or sometimes um, one of the things is because you're regional, you don't make recruiting mistakes, you know, because you're always, um, you know, I'm there in Louisiana. So I'm seeing high school athletes compete all the time in that area. So you pick out these gems that are kind of underdeveloped and you know, the kids you're getting better than, you know, you know, when I'm recruiting at LSU, I know the kids mark, I, I meet them on a visit, but I haven't seen them run over and over again. You know, it, you know, it, because the recruiting is regional based, it's a lot more efficient. And I think you make less mistakes, to be honest with you. So in, in that way, shape or form, you kind of end up being efficient. And every once in a while, you, you know, you can kind of slay the, slay the giant a little bit, you know. So since you're not trying to recruit quote unquote, 50 states or even the whole world, right? In today's world, you're mm-hmm. getting a little deeper because you're basically recruiting hundred miles from campus. So I get to see the kids repeatedly and do other events and things like that. So I get a little bit more knowledge of each kid. Yeah, absolutely. And even when I went to LSU to some extent, that was still a little bit of my MO because I knew the Louisiana kids by heart. Like I, you know, I'd seen them come up and, and everything. And I knew which ones were really good and which ones I needed to get. And I knew which ones, if they didn't qualify, I had to get to a JUCO and then try to get them on the, on the after, you know, that type of thing. So, you know, if you look at my collegiate career, a lot of the good ones I had were Louisiana kids. Yeah. Right. Yeah. At this point, is it fair to say football coaching is done? You're all in on track at this point? Pretty much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm done. I've never lost my interest in football though. Like even to this day, if there's a football clinic in Baton Rouge and I'm off, I'm going to go sit and listen to the lectures in the football clinic. So I've never completely gotten out of it. There's nothing I enjoy better than going to watch high school football on like Thursday night or Friday night because I still have a lot of uh, because I enjoy watching the good players play. And I still have a lot of friends who coach high school football. So I like to go watch their teams and that type of stuff. So football is still a passion of mine, even to this day. And I can still actually know. With, with the with, with the best of them but you know it's nice because i don't have a team on the field i never lose anymore <laughs> right. no uh no armchair quarterbacks for me i, I haven't lost in years man <laughs> do, do you have an affinity towards one level over the other whether it's high school versus college versus nfl i really love high school football is that right you know yeah um during the little time when i was out of collegiate coaching all together and I, I was doing consulting work and such and uh I could pretty much make my own schedule. It was a game on Thursday, a game on Friday, maybe a game on Saturday. If the game on Friday wasn't any good, I'd leave it halftime and go to a different game on Friday. It's just what I like. I, I really like athletes doing their, watching athletes do their thing. That, yeah. That's what I really like. You know, I just love seeing young kids do things. You know, when I was coaching at LSU, the most fun days were the days when we hosted a high school meet there on the in the indoor track or whatever yeah and you could just I could just sit by that wall and just watch kids run and watch kids jump and watch kids throw and just watch them happy when they did well and watch them pissed off when they lost and just see not only the competition and athleticism but the whole drama unfold you know 
so where does that come from, Boo? Because, you know, you've coached at the highest level. You mentioned, you know, coaching on the Olympic team. You've coached umpteen million NCAA All-Americans and national champions. But, I mean, your face, I mean, I've known you for quite a while now. Your face lit up when you were talking about going to the game on Thursday, going to the game on Friday, going to another game on Friday. Like, where does that level of passion come from? I don't know. I, I, I just, I like athletes. I like watching athletes do their thing. You know, I, I just love athletes from the standpoint of athletes are risk takers. Athletes are people who take risks and to try to do things, you know, and, and they, they kind of forget about themselves and they give of themselves. I just like the whole human drama of it and just the athletic mindset, so to speak, you know, and uh, I, I just like that. You know, I, I, I love watching the, the, the meet and watching the kid get pissed off because they lost or pissed off because they ran bad or whatever. You know, I, 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 I love watching the agony in their faces when they get hurt and, you know, they felt like they could have done, you know, I just, all of that human drama, whatever, I find it extremely uh, intriguing, you know, and, um, and I just have tremendous respect for anybody who goes out there and lays it on the line, so to speak, you know, and it is out there trying to win something and competing just for the sake of competition, mm. not winning, you know, just, just to say I'm the best, just to do as well as I can do. And I mean, that's something that I, I, I sometimes I worry that we lose as a society is, mm. I mean, is there, there's value in doing your best just because it's your best and sports are just where that still happens. And that's why I'm such a big fan of sports, you know? Mm. So where do we go from Southwest Louisiana? LSU. Straight to LSU. And you yeah, I went from there you, to LSU. And you must have known somebody or how'd you get, <laughs> how'd you get that job? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I've been around the LSU program and I knew Coach Henry well. I never dreamed that he would offer me the job, but he did. And um, so um, I'd had success at USL and, uh, um, you know, he, he knew me because Back in my high school days, I was even officiating some meets at LSU, you know, working meets and that type of stuff. So he kind of knew me and he called me and offered me a job. So, uh, you know, I didn't want to go. Um, I quit LSU twice. You know, I, like I said, I quit as a student. I had started a PhD at LSU one time. I quit that. I, I tell people I've only I've only quit two times in my life. LSU the first time, LSU the second time. So now I'm like, do I want to go to LSU? So I went to USL. I said, look, if y'all make me full time, I'll stay. And they said, no, go. Because, um, you know, the, the finances just weren't good there. Right. So anyway, so that's how I ended up at LSU. There, and, there wasn't any, um, you guys didn't, you and Coach Henry didn't pass through at Blinn, like, right? There was a separation. Right. Okay. We did not. If I had to guess, I would say Coach Henry probably, um, um, the, the fact that I coached in junior college and he had, mm -hmm. he probably liked that. Yeah. But I'm not sure. going to say that's why I got the job. Right. But, I, yeah. but I, I think that probably, um, you know, he, I think he likes Juco people. I, I just think he thinks Juco is a good level and you learn and type of kids you deal with and, the, you know, the ability to do without sometimes or whatever, right. I think he thinks is a positive. And I think that's probably was part of it. Well, and, and, you know, Coach Henry's a winner, right? He likes to see people develop positively. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say those kids you got at Southwest Louisiana weren't the number one kid in the nation coming out of high school, and yet they go on and win the national title and All-American. So I'm sure – Yeah, he's he, 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 he saw just, those kids doing well. If I had been failing, I doubt that he would offer me a job. Right, in fact, right. I'm pretty sure, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a smart guy. He, uh, talent, yeah, he, yeah, he, talent identification in athletes and uh, uh, coaches. <laughs> 
Yeah, so, that's one thing about Coach Henry. He's, you know, that's that's one thing. And surrounding himself with good coaches has yes. always been his uh, deal. Yeah. So what was it like going to LSU? So you're from Louisiana. So LSU is the mega flagship of the state. Uh, you had started school there. Uh, Coach Henry's there. So can I assume they're winning titles at this point? What, what, what year was this? 95. 95. So are, are you winning titles? Is LSU winning titles at that point? Yep. The okay. women are. The yeah, women okay. Are, they yeah. won like, you know, what? 25 in a row or something, hundred in a row, whatever it was, they were just winning. So what's it like expectation wise for you? Do you get a little nervous? Like, Oh man, now this is the big boy stage. I've got to step up. Or is this just coach? I got, I'm the coach, be the coach. Um, I went through about a six month phase where I did a very poor job. I, um, kind of thought I had to be a certain way mm-hmm. and, uh, it didn't work well. And my athletes didn't perform well when, when the kid I got at midterm was the kid that was doing the best and the one I had through all the fall weren't doing as well, I realized I needed to kind of figure it out. Mm-hmm. So it took me a little bit of adjustment, to be honest with you. It, it shouldn't have, but it did, you know? So, and, and I'll be frank with you, like I had been coaching track a long time by the time I got there and I was sitting in staff meetings, listening to the other coaches talk. And these other coaches are, have been in division one a long time. And there were times I didn't know, even know what the hell they were talking about. Like, because this level is like totally foreign to me, you know, so I I think I was a little bit overwhelmed and it took me a little while to get it going. My first, you know, semester or whatever wasn't good. And it wasn't until kind of the end of outdoor where I kind of got some traction. And then the next year I just came out and just was myself. Like, you know, you know, if I I was mad, I screamed. If I was happy, I laughed. You know, I, I, I just I just was myself and then everything pretty much clicked real well after that. That's a great lesson because when, whether it's a, a school's name or um, a boss, you know, Pat Henry in this example, sometimes we do get caught into this. Well, what do they expect? Like, how am I supposed to act when really what got you the job for you specifically was you being you. And so there was a little bit of like, oh, now I'm okay. Coach Henry, maybe I need to do this or I'm at LSU. So maybe I need to do this. And in reality, you needed to take a deep breath and continue what you're doing and continue to improve in how you were doing it. Yeah, I've never been the most confident person in the world, to be totally frank with you, at least, and I surely wasn't in that situation. But again, like I said, I just, at some point in time, it just kind of clicked. I started feeling a little more comfortable and I could just be myself. Hmm. And from that point on, everything went real well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I know you, so you being yourself, that makes a lot of sense. That, <laughs> that's what would actually work out. So you get to LSU in uh, 95, right? Mm-hmm. 95 through when did you leave LSU I stayed there through 07 07 right uh mm-hmm. so what an unbelievable time uh <laughs> uh talk to us about so how, how did you guys gel as a coaching staff because I mean you're winning titles left and right it's kind of like the old blend days if you will <laughs> uh you're winning every title's hard but I mean you're you're winning a lot you're specifically in your uh category lots of lots of all-american certificates are coming your way no, it was great because you had great athletes, you know, and you're working around great coaches. And I'll give Coach Henry a tremendous credit uh, because he is the person who, to me, was the absolute master as far as like setting up a culture, uh, like a team culture. And I don't even know if he could, ver- 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 you know, s- say exactly what he did, but you just have this thing you used to say all the time, just do the right thing every day, just do the right thing every day, you know. And, and um, anyway... Uh, under him, frankly, it was easy to coach winners, 
you know, because the culture was there. You know, he was pretty much supportive of what you did. Now, if you didn't do your job, you wouldn't be there very long. But, you know, if you were good, if you're, you know, if you were successful and whatever, he would support you. And, you know, there's a couple of times, not very often, where a kid would come in and, you know, I'm not, I'm not really happy with coach so-and-so. Well, well, where do you want to transfer? So I don't want to transfer. Well, says, well, you need to work it out with coach so-and-so, you know? So it was a very supportive kind of yeah. atmosphere, you know? And uh, anyway, so working for him, you know, everybody, you have ups, everybody, you have downs. But that was one thing was that the climate was, uh, uh, the culture of the team was a, a good one. You know, you could, you could, you know, you could produce there, whatever, you know? And as you're going through 95 through 07, you know, I, I pick you up around, I'd say 0203 in my career is when I know who Boo is and Boo's teaching level two, et cetera. Are you doing during this time frame more? I don't know how you could, but are you doing more clinics and coaching education? Are you doing more curriculum writing? What's that side of it look like for you? I'm doing a lot of that stuff, you know, and uh, pretty much had to type, you know, typing anytime I was on a plane, dead times in the hotel room, pretty much had the computer, you know, going all the time. And of course, Pat left in 04 and Coach Shaver uh, took over at that at that point, I decided not to pursue that job. I felt I was more of an assistant coach. I was more of on the track coach than an administrator. I didn't have confidence in my abilities as an administrator, to be very frank with you. And uh, anyway, so I got to work for him for three years. And I'll be very frank with you. Um, it got to the point where I was kind of experiencing some burnout. Mm. You know, I remember one time I went to one of the, you probably been listening to the same lecture, Mike, uh, the coaching burnout lecture at level two. Yep. And I remember out of 19 signs, I had like 18 of them, you know, and, um, and cause uh, it was all encompassing, you know, and, and it got to the point where I'm coaching post-grads, you know, so the college kids are starting practice around Labor Day, the post-grad kids are going through September. So you're coaching 13 months out of the year now, and it just never stopped. And there were years when you're coaching 30 something people or whatever, and I could grind uh, through it. But what I started noticing was my eye was not as sharp. I wasn't as perceptive about picking up signs. I wasn't quite as discriminating in the training that I was writing as I probably should have been, you know? So I tell people, if you got my workouts from my last couple of years at LSU, uh, those aren't the ones you want to, you want to copy probably, you know? But, um, and I'll be frank with you, you know, um, expressing my own weaknesses, like you get to the point when you're burnt out like that, that you're like, oh, well, I don't really need to call this recruit this week. I can maybe skip this week and call them next week, you know? And, and then that's when I realized that if, if that's what you're doing, it's time for me to, to bow out, you know? So I decided to take my retirement at that point. So, you know, I'm gonna talk about two things here, ego and self-awareness. Self-awareness is really hard, right? Like that's one of the things we, we need a lot of help on personally. And a lot of that sometimes comes from a coach, whether it's a athletic coach and you're an athlete, uh, maybe a fellow coach on your staff, even in the business world, we, we have coaches out here that, you know, it's called a blind spot for a reason, right? It's, it's blind. So you need others. Mm -hmm. How were you able, you talk about the burnout and maybe I, I wasn't doing all the things that I should, the recruiting, uh, my workouts weren't as sharp. I wasn't seeing things in the curriculum writing. Was there a coach of you that was helping you see this or how did you come to that self-awareness? I think I came about it myself, but I'm not saying that there weren't people who saw it before me, you know, that 
so I'm, I'm not going to be conceited enough to think that I dug my way out of it or right. picked it all up myself. Yeah. You know, and, and then my reputation might have worked against me in that respect, because probably if I'd have been a little less developed as a coach or a little less established as a coach, maybe somebody would have grabbed me and pulled me on the side and shook me up a little bit or whatever. Absolutely. Anyway, right. Talk, yeah. uh, speaking truth to power is tough. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think about like when you give that example there and I think about, you know, I'm at Mississippi State, your boo and I see you do something like, well, that's not that's uncharacteristic. I. I'd have, I probably would have wrote, written it down. I'm like, oh, well, I guess I got to start doing that. That's uh, you know, <laughs> that's how you per, uh, perpetuate mistakes, right? Um, so, so sadly, Coach Shaver didn't get the best boot. Uh, you know, uh, and, uh, um, I, that's why I tried to really make it up to him this second time around. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the other word I wanted to talk about was ego. And ego is not necessarily a ba bad ego is, is bad, but ego and self-worth and self-esteem uh, can go hand in hand. You mentioned, you know, you're at LSU for a long time. You've got a, a million accolades at this time. Was there ever a desire to be a head coach? You, you kind of expressed some of that self-awareness of like, yeah, I don't know that I was really strong administratively anyway, but was there ever a, a thought of leading your own program? No, I didn't. In, in fact, uh, sometimes I think that I made a mistake not trying to pursue the LSU job, you know, because, but I just, phys I just literally did not feel prepared at that point for some reason. And, you know, it's honest, honestly, I don't know that I have the desire to do that at this stage in my life, but now I feel like I can handle it easily. Um, but it's funny, you go through those stages, you know, and, and again, I didn't, I just saw myself more as a person who was going to be on the track and, you know, more of the, the Guy Friday kind of person, you know, right hand to the head coach as opposed to the head coach, whatever. Um, in some ways, I regret that decision because financially, you know, it, I'm, I'm behind the eight ball, you know, and that's why I advise everybody I talk to at this point forward to do, don't do what I did. You know, if you have an opportunity to move up, you do what you have to do. And because ultimately, you know, financially, you have to take care of yourself. You don't know what you have, you know, financially, frankly, I'm not where I'd like to be. I'm okay, uh, and we'll be okay. Uh, Julie and I'll be fine, but um, I'm not. Um, I, I wish I had more for her. Yeah, that, that, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, that's a real passion of mine for coaches. Um, as much as I loved the coaching education side, and it definitely changed my career, uh, and so much, in fact, that I started teaching levels one, level ones. I thought, I don't know, maybe 30 of them, and, and loved it, enjoyed being able to help other coaches. You know, my real passion now with coaches is that off the track stuff, your financial health, your, your own physical health, your relationship health. So, you know, I appreciate you being open and authentic there. Like, man, I'm, I'm behind the eight ball here. Cause when we're 25, 30 year old, 35 year old coaches, we're not thinking about our 401ks and IRAs. We're thinking about the next job or the next track meet or the next recruit. We're thinking about everything except well, what's life going to look like when I'm 65 or 70? Do I, do I want to retire? Can I retire one day? Or am I literally going to have to coach? It's one thing if you get to coach to be 80 and 90, but there's a different fact if you have to coach to 80 or 90 because of mm -hmm. retirement and lack of funds there. No, you're totally correct. You know, I was, I was a coach called me the other day and somebody I've kind of mentored a little bit and had a dilemma. I've been offered a job that is um, better you know, and um, I'd like to take it, but there's another job that I'm up for that's even better than this one. So I'll say, well, take the one that you just got offered. And then if you, the other one comes through, will you leave and go? Well, so I would only be there a couple of weeks. I'm like, so what? Mm. You know, I mean, I, I understand and I really appreciate your ethics in that situation, 
But I tell coaches now, the bottom line is no one is going to take care of you but you. You know, that's the nature of that that business, you know. And ultimately, your responsibility is not is, is to your family, you know, mm. to do the best for your family, you know. And sometimes I hear coaches say things like, oh, I don't want to leave the kids I have and all that. Well, yeah, but how you know they want to hire a better coach? You, you, you know, so don't be so selfish to think that just because you're leaving, everything's going to fall apart, you, you know. So, what? You know? A, hey, that's that was a really interesting way you just said that. So I, I've talked before about the selfless versus selfish aspect, right? In that, you know, coaches are so selfless, right? Like they spend all this time 24 seven with other people's kids, but yet that's also selfish, right? Cause they're, they're neglecting their family and friends and their lives, mm-hmm. etc. I love how you said, how do you know? I mean, this is real. You're talking about ego here. This is ego. How do you know <laughs> by you leaving, they're not going to get someone better for these kids. Wow. That's kind of like truth bomb right there. Like, like sit back and think about that. Holy cow. That's a lecture. I give young kids all the time, a fork in the road. You know, it's not like there's always a right fork and a wrong fork. Most of the time you can make them both right. You can make them both wrong by looking at your attitude and the way you handle it, you know, in those kind of situations. So I just kind of recommend people, you know, as you move through the profession, just kind of take care of yourself, take care of your family. Cause ultimately you know, nobody else is going to, nobody else is going to, going to do that. You know, everybody's got their own set of interests and that doesn't make anybody a bad person, but right. that's just the way the world works. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The number one excuse you hear is I don't want to leave the kids. Well, if that's the case, then you're never going to leave ever. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I hate, you know, sometimes somebody will rebut that and go, well, the kids will leave, especially in today's transfer portal world. Right. But it's like, uh, that's actually, that, that's not the same. You're, you're putting apples and oranges together there. It's more about, you got into coaching to coach. You didn't get into coaching to coach at LSU specifically. You got into coaching to coach. So whether mm-hmm. that's uh, a, a local high school, a, a power five, a, a JUCO, that's the profession and the passion you have. So take care of yourself along the way. So you're taking care of your family and your future. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, uh, you know, I, and I understand that and I appreciate it. I mean, I'm the person who tried to stay at USL rather than going to LSU as stupid as that might sound. <laughs> I tried to stay, you know, so I, I get it, but I'm, I'm beyond that. I, you know, right. I, I, you know, I've, I've been on the other side of that now and I, I, un, I understand, you know, ultimately nobody's going to take care of you, but you, and it bothers me because if you're going to coach, you're going to pay a price in your family life. You're going to pay a price and everything, you know, and that's why you got to like it. That's why you got to love it. Mm-hmm. And I, and I say to this day, if, if I was 40 again, the thing I would probably do, honestly, is not start a track and field academy. I would probably start a coaches union because mm. just to make working conditions better for coaches and whatever, because it's gotten to the point, you know, where so many people are telling coaches what to do. And in some situations, they've lost control of the process, but they're still responsible for the product, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and, and I, I, I sympathize with that because in many cases, um, coaches put up, I think, with way more than they should in some, some working scenarios, you know. And if you say that, that's not a popular thing because immediately somebody thinks of well, what Coach Saban has or what Coach Krzyzewski has or whatever, but they're not understanding that the typical NCAA coach, coach is an assistant soccer coach who makes $45,000 a year. And all it takes is one athlete who gets kind of angry with them and goes to an athletic director to complain and they're out the window, you know, with no recourse whether they're, you know, even though the, 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 the accusations right. or whatever it might be, you know, so, 
So I, it, it, you know, that kind of bothers me, and it bothers me because coaches do so much for young people, you know. And and there's bad apples in every profession, but I'm just a firm believer that as a coach, um, you are uh, you're you're an extremely important person in an athlete's life because, you know, the coach is still the person who's kind of making athletes understand how to win with grace and lose with dignity. And, and sometimes a coach teaches the lesson that the problem with you is you, you know, and there aren't many people who are still doing that anymore, you know? So I, I would hate to think where we are without the coaches. And I just don't want to make coaching any harder than it is already. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. Right. I mean, the positive impact a coach makes on young people today and right where your feet are. So whether you're in Chanute, Kansas, or New York City, it doesn't matter. You have young people right there in front of you, and you're making a positive impact. That's the power of a coach, mm -hmm. bar none. So I'm going to put coaching education to the side for a second. You go through 07, and you take an early retirement. You couldn't have been, you've mentioned about if you could go back to be 40 again, you could have been 45. I think it was 46. Yeah, okay. Yeah. As I say, that's you're around, it was my age. I, I'm not thinking about early retirement. How are you able to early retire? <laughs> well, I had a lot of years. Remember, I taught high school many years in the same retirement system I was in at LSU. Right. That's why you that's why you couldn't have pulled me out of LSU with a tractor and a crowbar because the retirement years were all the same as the high school, you know. Makes so sense. I got lucky in, in that regard, you know. Yeah. And I just did the math. I crunched the numbers and I said, well. Yeah, if I hang in there longer, I can up my retirement benefit. But I started looking at the money I could collect and I did number crunching and whatever. And I said, the financial play here is to take the retirement and just go do something else. And that's what I did, you know. So what does a 46-year-old, highly successful track coach do at retirement at 46? What was the something else? Well, what I did was this guy had offered me an opportunity to run a training center. And I said, oh, okay, well, this will work. Although that wasn't something I really wanted to do long-term or whatever, and that's what I did. And um, anyway, but what was interesting was when I left LSU, the phone ran off the hook. That's when the clinics and the consulting and all blew up, you know, because really? you know, the, the, the phone just started ringing off the hook. Look, you could never do my clinic because you were at LSU. Now you're coming up. All right. I want you to come uh, watch practices for two days and debrief us or whatever. You could never do that because you were at LSU. I want all you right. to come down. And that's when all of that happened. So I was extremely fortunate. And I tell that to this day to, to a lot of coaches, you know, who are kind of worried about what the next step might be is you never know who wants you right now who thinks you won't go because of the job that you have now you know so so anyway that's what happened and that developed into a pretty good business as far as consulting work and that type of stuff clinics and such and then right around that time was when track and field academy we kind of started you know getting that going i think that was, it was 09 when we kind of made the decision to to to, to, to get that going yeah, there's not a, you know, there, there's a, a collection of, I'm gonna call them post-collegiate coaches, but I don't know that there's a lot that I'm gonna call travel and consult, right? They have their training group and they stay there and maybe they do some camps and clinics and, and such, but they don't, they would never, that I've seen, I maybe just be out of the picture, don't go to another program and evaluate and help that coach move on or, you know, advance, I should say, not move on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So- Yeah, I, I uh, learned that financially it could work. Um, at least it could for me because I was fortunate to have a good reputation and some success behind my belt. But um, I learned that it could work because um, um, in all of these so-called performance training businesses, the, the facility is a huge overhead. Right. So I, I learned that if I just deal with the coaches and just help the coaches, 
I have no overhead. And, and so it ended up working out pretty good. I had some really good months financially doing that stuff. When I had a bad month, I had a retirement check. So the retirement check kind of gave me the flexibility to kind of take some risks professionally in that regard. You know? hmm. That's interesting. So are you coaching at all at this point? Or are you just coaching coaches? Pretty much just coaching coaches. Now, there were some situations where I was spot coaching, mm-hmm. like um, I, fly me in to work with so-and-so for a couple of days because of a particular problem or whatever. I'm, you know, I made a couple of trips up to Canada to kind of, you know, troubleshoot particular athletes or whatever. Um, Might have been a couple of instances where athletes came in to me for training camps or whatever. So I'm spot coaching, but I'm not coaching anybody on a like day-to-day, you're my athlete uh, basis. So they say it's like riding a bike in regards to a lot of things, right? Like you learned how to ride a bike as a kid and maybe you take 10 years off, you can hop right on a bike and ride. And that might be true. I haven't rode a bike in a while, but I bet if I got on, I probably could ride that bike, but I wouldn't be as good because I didn't have the practice. Are you getting out of practice during this time? No, you're going to ride the bike better. Uh, Getting away from it, you come back to it. You see it so much more clearly. You, you really see it clearly. You know, you, you, you remember, I, 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 I threw in the junk pile, you know, all of these years of burnout and everything that I had with me. And all of a sudden, like my, my eyes are working better. My perception's working better. I'm much more into, so everything is much sharper. Like I, I, I can now go to a coach and watch that coach work and pick up three or four things that I might have never seen before. Yeah, believe it or not, you get out of it and come back in and you see it much, much more clean. Well, the education people figured it out years ago. That's why sabbaticals are there, you know, uh, for that opportunity, you know, and there's something to be said for that. But anyway, um, just being in a different scenario, different. And there are some people who are like that. Like there's a couple of coaches I know who can't coach a lick, but they'll come and watch your athletes training. They'll point out three or four key things that you're missing because some people have that gift. And I think that I became a lot more perceptive in that particular regard at that, at that time. So I think you'd ride that bike better, Mike. Uh, My, my, my kids will be so happy when I tell them this. (laughs) (laughs) So where, okay, you're doing this and and doing really grasping the coaching of coaches at this point. What do you go, you come straight back to LSU. Is that correct? Well, I came back to LSU. I was gone for 10 years. Yeah. That's going to say what, so what, yeah. Yeah. What was the drawback? They call me. Uh, it can't be the only people that called you and probably not the only time they called you specifically. Well, I think most people realize I wasn't going to just go anywhere, you know, and mm, so sure. I, I got a couple offers, but nothing. But um, it, it was just Coach Shaver. He um, he lost his he had a really good throws coach who left him kind of abruptly in September. Mm. And he just felt like I can't hire somebody in September. Mm-hmm. Can you just fill in, so to speak? You know, can mm. you just fill in the year for me? I said, okay, here's how much it's going to cost you. And they, LSU was willing to do it. So I did it. And I like being back in it. He says, how can we keep you involved? Uh, do you want to continue? I said, coach, I, I can coach throws, but I, I can't go to Europe and recruit throwers. I don't have those connections that those throws guys have. Right. And uh, so w- what, what if I was the strength coach for the program? Then I can kind of continue to be involved and, you know, and maybe even touch on other kids in other event areas and so forth. So he says, okay. So he goes, he goes to administration and he, they created a position and he, here, here I am. So two unique things in that story right there, Boo. One, that you 
you came back to coach throws and coach shaver like it was an automatic like, hey i need can you come can you come coach throws like it wasn't like i don't know i think boo can do it for a year like it was like hey man i need help come come help me what is what has led you to be able to coach throws at this point is it just a transference of all the other things that you know biomechanically or well, I had always handled throws. You know, I coached throws in high school. I coached decathletes in the throws. I coached heptathletes in the throws. And okay. I'm a high school coach. I can coach anything from scratch, you know. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not saying that I have the level of sophistication in the throws or whatever, but I know how to train athletes and I got an eye for basic right. biomechanics. And you know, most people complicate it too damn much anyway. So so I so it worked out okay. I had a couple of kids did real well, you know. So, <laughs> so in any case. So and uh, you know, and I came back, and you know, Coach Shaver was just phenomenal as far as accommodating me. I had a couple of obligations that I couldn't get out of, and I said, Coach, I, I, I'd love to do it, but here are these obligations I have. He says, No problem, you know. And uh, anyway, he was extremely flexible and continues to be work with me. Great, you know, like you know, uh, I paid some compliments to Coach Sylvie, but I, I've been blessed to have some really good bosses. Yeah, for and sure. Coach Shaver for the last five years has been phenomenal to me yeah. i you could i could not ask for anyone to be any more uh helpful and supportive than he's been uh for these last few years it's been incredible yeah i will say i love coach shaver he is one of the most upfront and i mean this all in the positive ways upfront honest what you see is what you get he he's going to tell you the truth even if it's mm -hmm. to his detriment i think uh mm -hmm. he's such a truthful truthful guy uh he taught my level two sprints the year after I, I did jumps with you and at the end is so in the middle of level two al schmidt came to me and told me i was officially hired at mississippi state <laughs> so at the end you know we were going down and shaking the instructor's hands and all that and dennis takes my hand and he pulls me in real close and he goes you're the enemy now. <laughs> and I, I, I remember thinking, oh, welcome to the SEC, buddy. <laughs> so uh, and the other aspect that was interesting of that story, Boo, was you are you the only track and field specific strength and conditioning coach in the country? Um, I doubt it. Um, but I can't tell you five other Jimmy, coaches off the top of my head. Um. I don't know. I, I don't think that's the case. I, I, I think there are some other schools that have somebody that only does uh, track and field. Is that right? I'm probably the most, I'm probably just the most notorious one. Yeah. Uh, you, <laughs> you were starting to say Jimmy Radcliffe, I think. And that, I think that's, was that's, it for a while. Yeah. 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 Right. 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 That, that'd be one that I could have come up with, but it's an extremely unique position and really maybe forward thinking by you and Dennis in regards to this as well. So there's a, a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot. There's a, a stereotype of conflict between the traditional strength and conditioning coach and the track and field coach. Uh, this seems to solve any of that potential conflict or prejudice of conflict, if you will. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I, I during my 10 years out, I probably refereed more cat fights between track coaches and strength and conditioning coaches than, than anybody out there. Mm. In, in fact, I, you know, there was one university who wanted to bring me in as a consultant and their whole purpose was to gather mud on the track coach so they could fire the track coach. You know, I didn't take that paycheck. Um, wow. You know, but, but yeah, the you know, athletic administrators can be pretty devious at times. But anyhow, um, yeah, that unfortunately that the reason that stereotype exists is because almost all stereotypes have some basis in fact, you know. And so often you got a strength coach who has a football background or whatever and really doesn't understand the speed side of things. And, 
you got a track coach who kind of has a hunch of what needs to be done, but isn't good at verbalizing or doesn't maybe get the science behind it or whatever. And I think I can maybe make those things mesh mm-hmm. uh, to, to some extent. And the other thing that really helped us at LSU this time around was um, um, I'm not doing it quite as much now, but during, you know, during the little nice little run we've had with some really good athletes here is that I've been extremely involved with the sports medicine stuff. You know, for a while, I, uh, um, when I was working uh, with the hospital in Thibodeau, um, I had a lot of opportunities to do rehabs and I developed some philosophies on rehab and things like that that are much more in line with training than they are with traditional rehab. And some rehab people consider me a pariah. Some of them consider me lucky, and you know, a few of them consider me a genius. So I'm, 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 I'm the whole end of this, all ends of the spectrum, you know. But to make a long story short, um, uh, what I, when I, when it comes to rehab, I just try to take the things that I've learned as a coach of healthy athletes and just try to apply those principles in the rehab setting, and it just seems to go a lot better than a lot of traditional rehab does, to be honest with you. And the sports medicine people that I work with were, um, have been pretty open to involving me in the rehab process and making suggestions in the rehab processes and so forth. And maybe even making some advice as far as referrals and who to refer people to. And it's made a really big difference in our, our program, you know. Um, so I'll make a long story short, that's been helpful. So on the strength and conditioning side for the LSU track team, how much are you enjoying that aspect? Because so, I'm, I'm guessing you get to touch, if not all, the, a majority of the event groups. You get to see, you, you talked earlier about, you know, sitting up against the wall, watching the high school athletes compete. You <laughs> kind of get that same viewpoint now for all of the athletes on the LSU's track team. Yeah, I get to be involved with everybody, you know, and, you know, because I'm involved with the rehab and that type of stuff, and I'm kind of a go-between between between athletes and kind of an advocate for the athletes with the sports medicine people, whatever, at times, uh, I get to be involved with just about everybody at some point in time. So it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good thing. It's, um, Coach Shaver has been really great because, and some of our sports medicine people have been really great because they kind of almost allowed me to take this position and almost tailor it to my strengths, mm-hmm. so to speak, where I can kind of interject when I need to interject. And they might say that I interject a little too much or whatever, but you know, so, so be it. I, I, you know, I always, I can be, I can be painfully blunt. I don't, I don't know if you know this, but I can be painfully blunt. And, you know, sometimes I just tell them, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend to be stupid so you can feel better about yourself. You know, and that's that's one of the things that I live by. And every once in a while, it'll rub somebody the wrong way. But that's how the real world works, you know, and kids are going to go where they can get answers. And ultimately, that's the way it is. You know, I spent a lot of time mentoring young coaches. And sometimes now I mentor young therapists and trainers. And I tell them all the time that your title has nothing to do with what what with anything. You know, just because you are the trainer at this school or the coach of this at that school, kids are always going to look for answers, you know, and if you're not providing answers to them, they're going to seek elsewhere. And it doesn't matter if you have that title or not. So basically, if, you know, if they're not coming to you for the answers, then you have to raise your game, you know, because the title doesn't entitle you to anything. Ultimately, you know, that's the way it works. You know, even when I had really, really good athletes. And I was respected as a coach. 
you know, there are people in, you know this, Mike, there are people in your athletes' ears all the time. I can coach you better. I can make you do better or whatever. Well, if they're doing pretty good, they're, they're with you. But if they're not doing well, they start listening, you know? So there's always people in their ear. And ultimately, it's the, that's one of the things I love about it is it's ultimately the accountability associated with it. If you can produce results and produce answers for athletes and athletes come to you with problems and you help them to solve them, they're going to keep coming back. And, you know, and, and like I said, if you feel like the athletes are not doing that with you, you need to improve your game. You need to improve your skill level in, in that regard, you know. In this position, how is your relationship with the coaches staff there? And you get uh, every once in a while a new coach comes in and how much of a pain in your butt is Houston Franks? <laughs> Let me tell you something. Houston Franks <laughs> amazes me every day. That guy is one of the most, honestly, we are so happy to have him. And awesome. he's just kind of getting the ball rolling in that regard. But he is sharp as a whip. He is a fantastic coach. And he's got the personality to deal with different types of people. And he can, he can take a pissed off kid and defuse it. He, he can take a kid and bring him back. I mean, he, can, he just knows how to do it. And I, I'm just really looking forward to see what he does with that mm -hmm. program in the next few years you know love mississippi state you know got a lot of friends over there but we just got a different level of resource and um I, i'm just excited to see what he's going to be doing there with the that. big the biggest compliment i can give him is you know he was my roommate for a year and he survived so <laughs> he's, he's pretty good he, he said he could deal with a pissed off kid well he could deal with me so uh, you know i feel like i maybe helped him with his skill set there yeah so let's turn as we start to wrap up today here, Boo, let's turn to coaching education and camps and clinics and things like that. I told you earlier, you know, you're one of less than a handful of people that gets mentioned on this podcast. I'm going to say every other, but it's, it's, it's a higher, it's not everyone specifically, but it's, it's a higher rate than even every other one. Uh, and sometimes it's me bringing up stories of, you know, from my time of education with you, which, and I've said it a hundred times here, changed my, the course of my coaching career all for the better. Uh, and then it's the guest will have some comment of like, man, I saw boo at the Louisiana clinic, or I went to level two, or I went to USTFCA. And it's always, I mean, literally always bat, batting a thousand percent here, always in a positive light, not, not even in a mediocre light, boo, uh, not even in a like, yeah, I, I listened to boo. It was okay. And, and I've heard that from other coaches, from other clinics and stuff, right? Always with you, boo, always. It is whatever the closest thing to life-changing can be in the profession <laughs> of coaching track and field. I don't want to overstate it here. So I'll keep it just under life-changing. Um, what drew you, we talked a little bit about it, but what has drawn you into being this, not just a coach of athletes and coaching amazing 57 foot triple jumpers and 22 and 23 foot female long, I mean, just uh, decathletes, pole vaulters, I mean, throwers. It's one thing to be a great coach. And there's some amazing coaches out there and I love them. You have transcended a whole nother step and affected this sport unlike anybody that I can even think of right now in regards to helping other coaches become better coaches. Where did that come from? Where is that selflessness of I'm going to give away all my secrets. I'm doing air quotes there. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give it all to you. There's no holding back <laughs> here. You're going to get it all. Where does that come from, boo? 
Well, I think it's, some of it started with Dan, you know, just the fact that he was willing to do it for me, you know, kind of planted a seed and planted a little bit of obligation, you know, and I think we just have an obligation to leave something better than you, than you got it, you yeah. know. But that being said, a lot of it just has to do with what I feel about coaches. I said earlier that I think coaches are so often the most important people in athletes' lives, you know. Um, ultimately they, you know, sports teaches lessons. I have a huge, um, I have a huge, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? I feel very strongly that, uh, athletics is probably the best personality development program that a person can go through. It kind of teaches you the lessons you're supposed to learn. If you kind of go through sports and stick to the structure and whatever, you're going to come out a better person because of the lessons that you learn there. And ultimately, that's what coaches do. Coaches provide those opportunities. And it just I just feel that coaching is a hard job. It doesn't pay enough. It, it's difficult. You're dealing with athletes that don't appreciate you now. They'll appreciate you in 10 years, but they don't necessarily appreciate you now. You know, and you have all those issues. And I just felt that maybe my way of contributing to the world is if I make the world a better job for coaches and coaching are doing all this stuff, good stuff, then maybe I'm making the world a better place. So it's kind of become a passion in that regard. I just think that coaches do more for young people than just about anybody else. And if I can help coaches do that, that's what I'm going to do, you know, and I'm not really a, uh, uh, I'm, 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 if it comes through technical knowledge or whatever, or confidence building or mentoring or whatever, I'm just going to do that. So I, I think it just, it just comes from my respect for coaching as a profession and the value of coaching as a profession. You know, I just think that there's in our society, there's so many fussing and fighting and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, I, I just think that coaches, you know, you, you hear the argument. I, I don't think there's ever been a government program that has ever done more positive for society than any single coach has ever done for the athletes in their care. You know, I, I you know, you can you can take all the government money you want, put all the social work programs you want out there, whatever. None of them will ever surpass the good athletes get from playing organized sports with good coaches. And I just feel that strongly. And that's why I think it's a passion of mine, to be honest with you. So there's lots of coaches out there that on the track working with an athlete, they're really good. They're good at their craft. And then you might ask them to explain something that they're doing or that they saw or reasoning behind it. And they can't string three words together. It's just, it's a, it's a different skill to be able to teach that. On top of that, you, and I'm sure it's not just me because I've heard this story a couple of times from lots of coaches. You have a propensity to always communicate back with people that communicate with you uh, that are specifically that are asking for help. Like I know personally, my example, I emailed you out of the blue. You had no clue who I was before I did level two and then and met you personally, emailed you out of the blue was like, Hey, um, I've got, I don't even remember what the issue was. It was something. Yeah. I've, I have, what, what can you recommend? And really, I, I'll be real frank here. I sent that email thinking, yeah, I'm, I might as well not send it. It ain't, he, he ain't reading this. He ain't responding. Uh, he's at LSU. You know, I had this like, Oh, LSU, which might actually be 
true, right? But, uh, but like, you know, <laughs> he, he's not going to email. I think I was at junior college. I think I was at Neosho uh, over in Kansas. So I'm like, he's not going to email me back. I don't have any athletes for him to recruit. So there's no reason, you know, there's no nothing in it for him to respond. And you responded in a timely manner, even I want, yeah, not even like a week later, like quickly within 24 hours and not a one word, two word answer, like a, a thought out response. And of course, I took that advantage. I was like, well, I got to respond off of that. So I responded and it, it became this correspondence. And I've heard that story again. This is another one of those. I've heard a thousand of those stories. I emailed Blue, Blue out of the blue. That's uh, hard to say three times fast. I emailed Blue <laughs> out of the blue and he responded. Like people are like, oh my God, yeah, I couldn't believe he actually responded. And, I, and I, I bring him down a little bit. I'm like, ah, I hope you don't think you're special, meaning he does that with everybody. <laughs> He's the special one here. How do you, I mean, you do so much, you're coaching, you have your own private side, you're, you're, you're rewriting curriculum and teaching curriculum, and yet you seem to be able to respond to everybody. Well, you got to do what you got to do. I mean, it's important. And you got to do what you got to do. That's what's important. You know, there's something I'm doing that's not as important as that. I'm sure I'll just put that on the shelf. But ultimately, I've been in the same situation, you know, where I'm grasping for answers or whatever, and I'm desperate, and this kid wants to succeed, and they're highly motivated, and I'm not helping. I mean, I've been in that situation. I know what it's like, you know, and I'm not, you know, I can't get everybody within 24 hours, but, you know, if you send me a question, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to answer it if I can, because simply there are places for coaches to go, you know, mm. and again, I go back to what I said, coaching is hard, but I'm, but I, I get a lot of credit for that, but I'm going to say one thing. There's a lot of coaches who give like that. You know, there are a lot, you know, Dan was that way, you know? Um, and what's funny is this, is that in my career, when I've reached out, the very best coaches are always open. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, when I, when I contacted a really good coach, you know, maybe it's a little sooner, maybe it's a little later, whatever, but they always are given. They always give. Now the second tier of coaches, the ones who aren't the very best, but they're a little bit under, those are the ones who will, I can't tell you that, that's my secret, you know? So so I, I just think that when you become a good coach, there's a certain level of security that you have. And you understand as long as you have some athletes, you're gonna be perfectly fine. And it doesn't hurt anything to give away secrets or, or advice or whatever, because ultimately, you know, you, you're, you're, you're safe and comfortable in your own skin, so to speak. And I, I think that's part of it is, you know, ultimately aspiring to be comfortable in your own skin. Ultimately, you know, and I tell the kids all the time, you know, I told the other day, you know, we, we were trying to talk, I was talking to this young lady, long jumper, not on our team, a, a different one. And we're trying to come up with a strategy and I want her to have some input. And I told her, I said, look, I don't have a skin in the game. I says, if you do poorly, nobody's going to say I'm a bad coach. And if you do great, I don't get to keep the trophy. You keep it. So, you know, you know, so that, that's the way we need to look at it. Ultimately, I think we always need to keep in mind that ultimately the competitions are for the athletes. You know, you kind of want to think that you're the quarterback who's controlling everything or you're the, not, not even the quarterback, maybe the puppeteer, you know, who's pulling the strings and control, but you're not. Ultimately, you're not. You know, you're, what you're doing is you're trying to prepare these athletes to handle their own competitions is what you're trying to do here. And if you kind of look at it that way, then it becomes a lot easier, I think, to be unselfish in that regard. 
I'm going to lie and say, I've got two more questions, boo. I'm sure that's going to get 200 more, but so we've talked about Dan path a lot today and what he meant to you and uh, thank God for his mentorship of and selflessness with you, because that helps grow that with you. Uh, and I love Dan as well. He's amazing. Uh, I have several talks with him, love him to death. Uh, in fact, you two are, when I describe coaches, I'll say a lot of times, like there's a lot of great, great coaches. And then there's just a handful that are just one step above. And you and Dan are always in that group that I mentioned. Well, thank you. Something that is different though, Dan, super smart. I mean, if you've ever had a conversation with Dan Path, that dude is just smart. <laughs> I am an uh, untrained coach who got a public relations degree from Troy University. When Dan talks to me, I, I won't even talk about camps and clinics. I'll just talk about when we have conversations when we used to have coaching conversations, I don't even try anymore. Come on. I'm, I'm, I'm I can't, I can't, I can't coach myself out of what paper bag now, <laughs> but when I used to like, you know, soak up all this knowledge, Dan would say things. And I, I could tell like there were things like, Oh, okay. I need to pick up this and this and this, but it was at such a level. I just couldn't grasp now. And, and that, and, and obviously there's brilliant coaches out there. Part of it was me and my education level. So there's plenty of people that Dan has affected <laughs> positively here. You are able to teach high level stuff, but at a, uh, I'm gonna call it a, a kindergarten level. Cause that's basically where I was at. <laughs> You're able to help people who don't have science backgrounds, who maybe have never even coached the event. They just know, uh, Hey, I came to level two because next year I got to coach jumps and I'm a thrower by trade. I know nothing about jumps. You're able to simplify very difficult concepts. Was that from your teaching background? You mentioned teaching math. Was it from that background or how, how did that skill develop? I think that part of it does come from my teaching background. You know, the, the, I, I, and, but it, I think it's also a kind of a product of my personality. My personality is I have organized thought processes. So I'm always thinking in terms of cleaning up the thought process. You know, I'm always thinking in terms of trees, you know, yes, no, yes is this, no is this. And then yes, might bring you to another, you know, so I'm always thinking that's how my brain works. Meaning that there, you know, I, 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 I think in a very organized fashion. And I think the reason I can bring it across as organized is because it's genuinely filed in my head in an organized fashion in the same way, you know? So I, 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 I it's, it's not abstract to me. It's, it, the, it, it's not like a black box thing where here's a cause, here's an effect, and there's no tracing in between. To me, the, the routes of, of cause effect and everything are very clear. And I just think that had something to do that that's just how I think, so to speak, you know. So everything to me is kind of cause effect in that regard. I'm always looking for those relationships. Uh, some people might say, well, that makes me not a creative person. And that's probably a valid criticism, to be honest with you. I'm the kind of person that, like, I can never write a song. I can never write a poem. I can never do anything like that. How the hell do you, like, just come up with a tune and work? How do you do that? I can't do that. But... If, but if you give me an idea, I can elaborate on it and make it a whole book, you know. So I'm not the creative person, but I'm the person who can do logical deductions and engineering problem solve and organize things and put things in neat folders and whatever. And that's kind of how my mind works. I was about to say, you're an engineer. that You just described engineering right there. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you say you're not the creative person, but that's exactly where my second question was coming here. Y you are infamous i'll go with infamous on your stick figure <laughs> drawing 
<laughs> like it is if stick figures is an art form then this is what you do you you have i have seen you draw long jump triple jump high jump in stick figures that again i'm just like oh i get it now like you almost had me believing after after level two jumps that i could coach the pole vault almost almost luckily <laughs> luckily, luckily for all our athletes i did not coach pole vault but you almost i was like oh man look at that stick figure i, I could get that stick figure to do that yeah and you know it's a shame you know it's a shame mike the younger generation of coaches they have no idea because everybody wants powerpoint you know oh, so yeah. so but i can still do it you know back when i was coaching and recruiting uh, we used to take the recruits to one of these restaurants where they put paper on the table, you know, mm -hmm. and they used to bring out the crayons, you know, and whatever the kids event was, I would stick figure their event from beginning to end all the way across the table, you know. Oh, I don't know that man. it ever made a difference, but anyway, it was a conversation starter and nothing else. How many, I wonder, and there's a number, I know athletes still have that like in their scrapbook or in their like, that's cool, man. That's, that's a good question. Because uh, I guarantee you, no other coach did that. Let me just say. <laughs> <laughs> but where did that draw? Because that is a, you know, you talk about right brain, left brain type stuff, right? That is a creative thing. That's a visualization. How, how did you, when did you start that? And did you like, did you have to learn it? Or was it like automatically you were able to translate what you see into really well figured stick figures? Well, it's knowing what you see. And so it, to me, it's not creative. It's just factual. All you're doing is repeating something that you've seen. But the other thing is that um, there are rules, like if you, of, of how the human body operates biomechanically, like um, when you're in um, kind of unilateral movement, you know, single leg type of patterns, one joint is going to be at maximal flexion when the other joint is at maximal extension and vice versa. You know, if you're working bilateral and typically similar joints are going to have similar extension patterns. Mm -hmm. So basically there are rules as to how the body operates. And when I draw the stick figures, what I'm doing is I'm kind of operating by those rules. I know the points at which the elbow angle and the knee angle are going to match. I know the times when the ankle angle and, you know, so I, I understand commensurate positions and those relationships biomechanically. And that's the, the trick, so to speak of it is to kind of take biomechanics to a whole new level. But no, that's not creative at all. It's totally factual, man. If you didn't have the emotions and feelings that you have, you would be the Dr. Spock of coaching track and feel you're so logical. Like, no, this moves here. That means this has got to move here. If you want to do this, you got to do that. And when you ask some of the athletes I coach how logical I am, because I, I, I got a little bit of reputation to somebody who get a little heated every once in a while too, you know? I'm, I'm that person that lets everything slide about 95%. But when I go off, I like really go off, you know, so. uh, it's funny you said that because there's this memory burned in my head from our level two. And by the way, I got to give a shout out to a mutual friend of ours, Mike Korn. When I was signing up for my first level two, you know, I was going to be I was a sprints and hurdles coach. So I was going to go do sprints and hurdles. And it was the Boise State level two. And he calls me up. He goes, hey, Mike, I'm sorry. It's full. Uh, do you want to do jumps? And I was like, jumps man, I coach jumps. I was at Ball State. I coach jumps here because Sue Parks makes me not because I want to, I want to be, I want to be Dan Powell. I want to be a great sprints and hurdles coach, you know? And he goes, Hey, trust me, man, you're, you'll learn a lot from, from the jumps. Just do it. Okay. Just consider it and do it. And I was, and I remember I was like, Mike, all right, fine. I'll do it. And thank the Lord I did it. Uh, love my sprint teachers. The very next year I told you, you know, Dennis Shaver, Gary Winkler, um, 
uh, maybe Rocklight, I think. I can't remember who the other one, who the other sprint coach was, unfortunately. Uh, but I did learn so much from level two, uh, from the jumps, more about the training theory of not, not mm -hmm. necessarily, you know, the technique, but how do you sequence mm -hmm. your, your training? That, that's what kind of like really blew my mind and changed how, how I coach. But I remember, and if you know anything about memory, it's not a VCR that you just replace. So I'm sure I have some of these facts incorrect here, but here's how I remember it. We were talking about triple jump and you were talking about, you know, difference between training a triple jumper, more like a short sprinter versus 400 meters. And you're like, if you want to have the best triple jumper, you can't train them like a 400 meter. It's, it's totally different energy systems, et cetera, et cetera. And this coach, and I don't, I don't want to pigeonhole and say he was a high school coach. I have no idea actually, but this coach gets up and says, well, boo, I like all my triple jumpers to run the 400 because it makes them tough. And you said, and through a little bit of back and forth and you were really good. Like this is part of your 95% where you let a lot of things go. <laughs> but ultimately you said, and again, you maybe didn't even say this is just how my memory is. And just all these uh, statements and these, these terms that you have, you know, I said one earlier, you to coach, be to coach. That's straight from you all the mm -hmm. way. But you looked at the guy and you said, look, when they make an event called tough, I'll train a kid to be tough. But right now it's triple jump in the 400 and those should not mix. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just so yeah. impressed how, you know, I knew who you were in stature and LSU coach automatically you get, you know, track cred for that. Right. And I remember the audacity of this guy, like you're arguing with boo Shexnader, what are you doing? <laughs> and you were just so calm, cool and click, didn't let it overtake the class and went right back into your stick figures. It was quite amazing of how you handled people in that sense. You know, and, uh, sometimes there are instructors in coaching ed, and I got to encourage them, you know, because sometimes they try to validate things. You know, when I taught a coaching ed class and somebody who just would voice something that's like wrong or totally wrong, I wanted everybody in the class to know it was wrong mm -hmm. because, yeah, you know, you handle this one person with, with kid gloves or whatever, but I don't want the rest of the class leaving with a clouded picture of what's actually correct and so forth. So, I just think those are little stands that you kind of have to have to take, to, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. I mean, you, it's right or it's wrong. You know, there's there's very little gray area, you, you, know, you know. So that being said, you know, I, I just sometimes you don't have the courage to confront or the courage to correct or the courage to just tell somebody they're wrong. And that's not right. That's why even with dealing with the athletes to this day, you know, I'm I'm blunt i'm positive to a certain extent mm -hmm. but i'm also kind of blunt like this is where you are and this is what you can expect or whatever and you know i don't like to deal in fantasy mm. you know it's, it's it's not a good betting model <laughs> i tell you the engineering mind is coming out every sentence now every sentence i hear i'm like oh yeah that's right or wrong yep that's very little gray <laughs> that's true uh boo man i can't thank you enough um you know, literally, I could sit here for another two hours and trade stories back and forth with you because you are a man we could, of stories. Because we, yes. we've done some stuff, but Absolutely. I want to thank you because this has been so fun. Because normally I'm talking technical stuff and whatever, and to kind of take you through the journey and kind of get to open up a little bit about my ups and my downs has been a lot of fun and very therapeutic for me. So, Mike, this has maybe been the most fun thing I've ever done, uh, podcast-wise. So I really, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for that. That's, uh, I mean, I'm honored. And these podcasts, like the, these interviews here are really, really tough for me. Uh, Mouse and uh, Karen Dennis was another one. You know, it's people that I coached for 10 years, 
you mm-hmm. guys and gals were the ones I looked up to. Like I said, I'd email you and help me out here. I'd mm-hmm. email Karen, I'd email Mouse, be like, help me out here, and then get my butt kicked when I went to their conference and stuff. <laughs> uh, so it's a little nerve wracking because it's, you know, I, I put you on a pedestal, rightfully so. And I'm just so happy that you are human <laughs> uh, and that the things that you do matter. You know, I, I talk a lot about, I said it earlier, about coaches and right where your two feet are right now, you're making an amazing positive impact. Whether you coach 10 kids or 100 kids, you coach middle school, you coach professionals, you have a, a real honor and um, ability to positively affect those kids' lives. And it doesn't, that's, this is the great part about it. This is where math comes in. You, you'll be able to explain this way better than now you can, boo. Uh, math, right? Multiple. So if you coach 10 kids, those 10 kids go on to become moms and dads and doctors and lawyers and coaches, and they affect young people in a positive manner. And they, they hearken back to how you treated them as a coach and they teach their children how to be that way, their coworkers to be that way, their uh, athletes to be that way. You have a whole different multiple set here, Pooh. So not only do you have that athletes, you know, you've coached for a long time and you've got many, many athletes that are coaches now, uh, moms, doctors, dads, great people in society your web over coaches, every coach that you've taught in a positive manner has gone on to affect positively thousands of athletes, your tree, so to speak. It's not even a tree. It's a friggin' forest here, my man. You have affected so many young people's lives directly as a coach and indirectly as the coach of a coach. And you've changed people's careers. I, I, I distinctly, I've told the story a hundred times. I'm not going to tell the full story now. My, my career was 10 years. There is a distinct five-year mark. And that five years, right after five years was I, when I had you, my next five years, I look like a genius. <laughs> Maybe not so much there. I, you know, that's, that was a little far, but it's way different because of the impact you had on my life. And I know that is shared by literally thousands of people in the coaching profession, profession, my man. And I'm just so, I'm just so thankful, uh, thankful that Dan Paff saw something in you and took the time to teach you. I'm so thankful that uh, you didn't go on to become the defensive coordinator of the Cowboys, I guess the Saints here in Louisiana. <laughs> uh, I'm so thankful the path that you've taken to get to where you are today because it has been so positive in so many people's lives, man. And I'm just so thankful from all of the coaching body. Thank you from all of us. Thank you, Mike. I think I'm going to hire you to do my tombstone, okay? <laughs> Hey, that is going to be one. I'm a, excuse my French, one big ass tombstone, my man. Uh, <laughs> got a lot of, a lot of accolades, but man, I, I am so thankful. I'm so thankful you would join us here tonight, man. Um, been a pleasure. Thank you're you. extremely busy. I, I, I was, it was a wing and a prayer to reach out to you. Cause I'm like, man, he's going to be so busy. And I also knew, cause I know you well enough. I was like, he is going to make the time. So I had to be very careful of, of your time, man. It's, it's, uh, it's precious. And I'm just so thankful you'd be here with us today and be so open and authentic and humble with us today. This has been therapeutic. Appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Thanks. It's all, all the honors mine, man. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed this story. This is, uh, he's a legend. And sometimes we don't get to hear and honor our legends while they're here. And so uh, it was important for me personally uh, to be able to have a mentor of mine, somebody who, again, changed my life as it relates to coaching. Uh, and I tell you what, Boo, I take the selflessness and attitude of you know helping people. I, I take that into my daily 
my daily life now as a, as a father and as a husband and as a professional here at Yale Athletics, man, uh, you, you set a great example for all of us. So thank you for being here and listening. If you found value in today's podcast, I'm going to go on a limb and say someone else in your network would receive value as well. So share it uh, and just spread this story and then go be like boo, man, go out and help someone else, your athletes, other coaches, give what you have away because it's going to come back to you 1 million times. So thanks for being here today. Join us next week and we'll do it all over again.